Kia ora, uh, and welcome to this month's Mimia podcast discussion uh, with New Zealanders doing amazing work shaping the future. Uh, my name's Ben Reid. I'm the author of the weekly Mimia newsletter covering emerging tech, new ideas, and thinking about the future. Uh, you can subscribe for free at httpsmimia.substack.com. Today, I'm joined from the UK by New Zealander Lyndon Burford, who's a global expert on nuclear disarmament and deterrence. Um, he's also a proponent of using blockchain technology to incentivize nuclear disarmament, which we'll get onto soon. Uh, Kira Linden. Kia ora. Good to be here with you. And uh, let me just say I'm a big fan of Mimia, so thanks for the great work, oh. and it's, it's a real pleasure to be here with you. To start this off, it's like in 2021, when we've got a sort of global climate crisis facing us down the barrel, uh, and you know behind that, a global ecological crisis um, that's really just so imminent. Then, you know, why in 2021, why is nuclear disarmament still important? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Um, I, I think my starting point for discussing this with, with any, any general audience is if you care about the climate crisis and if you care about the COVID pandemic and if you care about the global ecological crisis, you should care about nuclear weapons. Um, because although the sort of general political and media landscape doesn't focus on nuclear weapons, actually the nuclear crisis never went away. So the, the uh, postures, the nuclear weapons postures, so-called, that existed at the end of the Cold War between uh, the United States and the Soviet Union, which you know, United States and Russia now, um, are exactly the same as they were in 1989. Uh, both countries still keep um, maybe collectively a couple of thousand long-range uh, long-range missiles on um, the terminology is a bit funny, but some people call it hair trigger alert. Some people call it launch on warning alert. Basically, what it means is that uh, 24/7, 365, the world is never more than an hour away from full-scale nuclear war. Um, right. So that's half an hour away from launch of those couple thousand long-range nuclear missiles and an hour before they start landing on their targets. Um, so that never changed. But then in terms of how does this issue relate to the climate crisis and global ecological crisis, et cetera, uh, about seven or eight years ago, um, some researchers took the climate modelling uh, software of the IPCC, the International Panel on Climate Change, and they applied it to the uh, hypothetical scenario in which there was a, quote, small regional nuclear war between India and Pakistan, in which each side used about 50 nuclear warheads for a total of 100 warheads. Mm. And using that modelling, uh, they determined that if that hypothetical war were to happen, uh, anywhere between one and two billion people worldwide would starve to death just from the climatic impacts of the war. So setting aside the immediate devastation like of the cities. nuclear winter that would come. Nuclear winter. So basically what would happen is that the firestorms that would be created in dense urban areas would loft millions of tons of, of uh, carbon and soot and ash and smoke up into the upper atmosphere because it's superheated. And so it will float up into the upper atmosphere. And then because at that, that height, the wind speed is really rapid, it would rapidly spread around the world and basically blanket the world in dust and soot. Uh, and that would lead to radical and almost overnight uh, global cooling 
which would impact growing cycles around the world, impact crop productions, all of your staples, your wheat, your rice, all of these things that feed the world. Uh, and they estimated that that would kill between one and two billion people worldwide just from starvation. So that's setting aside uh, immediate casualties, that's setting aside that there will be no ability to produce credible healthcare in those areas impacted. Well, and, and the global economic collapse, that, you know, and societal collapse that we should come from that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, that, so that's just one sense of why I say if you care about the climate crisis, you should care about nuclear weapons because the climate crisis is actually making nuclear war more likely yeah. by causing flooding events in areas where people manage nuclear weapons, by causing mass migration that causes political instability that increases the likelihood of war and escalation. And in return, a nuclear war of any scale, even a small, quote, nuclear war, um, bearing in mind that those 100 weapons are sort of around about Hiroshima-sized weapons. The actual weapons that the United States and uh, Russia have these days are orders of magnitude larger than that and, right. and more. I mean, it's just such a stark reminder. Hiroshima happened, you know, at the end of the Second World War and, and Nagasaki. And, you know, these are artifacts of history and, you know, how horrific they, they were to destroy entire cities and, and millions of people. And that was just two, two bombs, right? And then we've, you know, even, I mean, I was sort of born in the 70s. And so that, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis was before um, I was born even. As far as the media interprets it, that's the closest we've ever been to a nuclear conflict. You know, it's all sort of sat in the background of people's consciousness ever since. But in terms of the history, how come this is this does sit in the background of people's consciousness now when you know like you say this is actually an an imminent um global catastrophe that is you know sort of an hour away um in, in the way that you framed it there so and i think at the end of the cold war a number of trends shifted and and as a result shifted attention away from the nuclear threat so the first thing was the soviet union collapsed hmm. pretty peacefully uh and very quickly, the countries that had uh, Soviet nuclear weapons left on their territory as a result of the dissolution of the Soviet Union returned those weapons yeah. uh, to so Russia. So that was Ukraine, Belarus, Belarus and Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan. Yeah. 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 Um, so the immediate tension that was the focus of, of the threat at the time dissipated pretty quickly. Uh, we had the unipolar moment of, you know, the United States sort of running the world. Yeah. Um, and then at the same time, because that immediate sense of threat dissipated, um, all of the issues that had been hiding in the shadows, for example, the global ecological crisis and climate crisis that had been brewing uh, whilst we were worried about nuclear weapons, emerged out of that shadow. And suddenly there were all of these critical issues that had gone un unaddressed. Uh, and we started developing the broader ideas around what security actually means. What does it mean to have you know, climate security? What does it mean to have food security? What does it mean to have, you know, human rights and all these human security type uh, issues? And so a lot of people that had been focused on the nuclear threat switched their attention to these other critical issues. And then the other thing that happened was out of that triumphalist moment of the West has won the Cold War, we perpetuated all of these myths, which, which we now are finding actually empirical archival research is telling us that they were myths. We perpetuated this myth that the reason that we haven't had an unwanted use of nuclear weapons was because of nuclear deterrence. 
And, right. and the reason that we prevented great power nuclear war is because we all have this system of making nuclear threats. So, and so talk, us, those... talk, talk us through talk us through the game theory of that um, of this concept of nuclear deterrence because now in a much more connected, more multipolar world, it feels that, that everything is connected, and so there's no way that you can sort of have a have a, a, a nuclear deterrent. You know that, that faces it only faces in one direction historically, but now it's facing in, in, to multiple poles. Yeah, I mean that's that's the uh, the challenge we face. Mm. So if you're someone that watches this world and is and is interested in reducing the likelihood of nuclear war and reducing nuclear risks, as as I am and many many other people that that also work in this field, uh, you know that all of the trend lines in this area are in the wrong direction, all of them. So. As you say, like during the Cold War, we had what was largely a bipolar uh, confrontation that was kind of conceptualized between East and West, but it was very much driven by Russia at the center of the Soviet Union, by the United States at the center of NATO. Uh, sorry, the, the Russia at the center of the Warsaw Pact countries and, and the Soviet Union at the center of that. Um, and there was one weapons system that was considered to be, quote, strategic, and that was nuclear weapons. And and so you had this bipolar situation with one weapon type that we we're all interested in, quote unquote, balancing. What we have today is we have a multipolar nuclear world where there are nine nuclear armed states and that there are these multiple chains of deterrence where, for example, uh, China will increase its nuclear missiles or whatever it's doing, it's building its missile silos these days because it's concerned about the United States. And so it's trying to deter the United States, but then that spooks India. So India... Feels like it has to develop some new nuclear weapon system, which spooks Pakistan. So Pakistan starts building more nuclear weapons. And this has been going on in this kind of cycle for a while now. And so you've got this multipolar arms race. You've got a whole And, and yet, you know, Pakistan is just across the border from China. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and, and so you're, you're dropping one on your own neighborhood, right? Um, I'm not. I'm not going to pretend that this is this is sensible. I think it's all a little bit silly, to be perfectly honest. But but there are many people who have built entire careers studying and perpetuating, and also selling quite literally in the sense of making a lot of money out of these ideas. And that's that's an issue I want to come back to later. Okay. Yeah. But um, in addition to the to the multipolar nature of the arms race, we also have multiple weapons types that are now considered to be strategic. So you've got nuclear weapons, but you also have highly sophisticated cyber weapons. You have hypersonic missiles being developed. You have artificial intelligence that's speeding up and complicating our systems of managing the weapons. But, and the whole debate, I mean, I sort of been involved in that ban killer robots conversation um, and sort of you know, lethal autonomous weapons. And the ultimate lethal autonomous weapon is an autonomous nuke. Well, nuclear technology is 50, 60, 70 year old technology. And um, as I was seeing just online the other day, there's uh, someone's put a, uh, machine, machine gun on top of spot the dog um the boston dynamics robot right and so it's it's happening around us yeah. yeah i mean i think uh i think the israelis are pretty close if if they haven't already uh to deploying um drone swarms in the field you know with yes. over the horizon sight lines where where soldiers don't even have to be in line of sight yeah. they can just throw drones over the horizon and, and take out wherever they want so that's battlefield type stuff yeah. So, I mean, yeah, that's, that's the world we live in. And, uh, and in that world, uh, there are a whole new, whole new categories of nuclear risk where there are new vectors for escalating towards nuclear conflict. 
So that's going on as well. And then beyond all of that, as I said, there is this perpetuated myth that nuclear deterrence, which is this theory of grossly speaking, people categorize it as mutually assured destruction, where yeah. if, if the West threatens the East or you know, if Russia threatens the United States and vice versa, then they are both incentivized to act, quote, rationally, which means with restraint. And they're both incentivized not to escalate out of fear of sparking what then becomes a nuclear war. And so the, the, the theory is that that has what prevent, is what prevented uh, an unintended use of nuclear weapons during the Cold War and thus prevented also large-scale, uh, like major power war. And what we're actually finding now in the academic world, and by which I mean people that do multi-year studies in the archives of US and Russian and UK and French uh, and Turkish archives, is that on multiple occasions, that simply was not true. On multiple occasions, we avoided the use of nuclear weapons out of pure luck. In right. some cases, that luck was that a system failed. And as a result of the failure of that technical system, the bomb didn't go off. In other cases, it was that humans in the deterrence mm. loop deliberately disobeyed what they had been trained and drilled and ordered to do. And as a result of that disobedience, a nuclear weapon yeah. was most likely not used. So there's all of these situations that tell us actually. So we have this idea in the public imagination that this, this threat-making system creates, quote, security. And what we actually find is that empirically, the evidence is now coming out of the archives to say, now, in some cases, that may have been the case. In some cases, deterrence may have caused countries or leaders to act with restraint. Mm. But there are multiple instances in which it was pure luck or it was pure disobedience yeah. of deterrence protocols. I mean, there's the classic um, you know, story of the Soviet uh, submarine captain, you know, I think, in, in the Caribbean and was out of communication. Can you just maybe just remind us of that particular yeah, sure. incident? I mean, yeah. So as you said, right, the Cuban Missile Crisis is generally considered to be when we came closest to nuclear wars, 1962, October, and uh, Kennedy kind of generally is in, in the, the historical retelling is told as this figure of great statesman-like leadership that steered us through, you know, the narrow passage. And actually, again, what the archival evidence says that he took radical risks, knowing that they were radical risks far beyond what he himself said were the United States' interests at the time. Uh, and not only that, but deterrence as a system assumes that we all have perfect information, that we know yeah. what the enemy's doing and thinking, that we can interpret their thinking correctly. It, it, it's a, a game of chess metaphor, right? Which is absolutely not how the real world exactly. well, operates. Yeah. If, if it's a game of chess metaphor, it's like a game of chess, except you don't know what the moves are and you don't know what your part, what your you know, enemy is capable of doing and is not with their pieces. And so to yeah. give that example in the Cuban Missile Crisis, the United States um, underestimated the number of Soviet troops by a factor of, I think it's two or three. Like they, they underestimated the number of Soviet troops on the island. They also right. didn't know, they assumed that the Soviet nuclear missiles on Cuba were not active. And in fact, they were active, deployed, ready to launch nuclear missiles. So the United States is acting, and, and Kennedy is making all of these aggressive moves on, the, for example, putting an embargo around the island, like blockading the island, on the assumption that the Soviets have very few troops on the island and they don't have active nuclear weapons. And in fact, it turns out that they had way more troops than the CIA was saying, and they had active nuclear weapons. Then beyond that, getting to the submarine example that you talked about, 
the American ships that were blockading the island started dropping uh, depth bombs. Or they weren't highly explosive, but they were designed to force the Soviet submarines in the area to surface. And again, they didn't know that, that the ships that were dropping these depth charges didn't know that the Soviet submarines had nuclear-armed torpedoes on them and that they had permission to use the nuclear-armed torpedoes if they came under attack. So when these submarines started having depth charges dropped on them, the captain of one of these uh, vessels wanted to use his nuclear torpedo to sink the American ship. And again, by luck, it happened that this was one of the, the, the lead vessels in the fleet. And as a result, it had the KGB political uh, officer on that vessel. And the KGB political officer overruled the captain of the submarine and said, we're not starting a nuclear war because we're having a depth charge dropped on us, right? But there again, if that KGB officer had happened to have been on a different submarine, yeah. you had a, a Russian captain who had the technical capability, the legal permission from his country, and the intention to start a nuclear war, but he didn't because we were lucky that that officer Com was on, on the vessel. Complete uh, you know, alter alternative history scenario. Um, right. to, to the other thought. thing, just one other critical yeah. point about that is that we only know that, what are we now, 1962, right? Like six years. decades yeah. later, and only because academics have spent years in archives dredging through this stuff to get it, and governments have done everything they possibly can to prevent academics getting it. So the knowledge that we have about these failures of deterrence and the luck that prevented nuclear war is despite massive secrecy and lack of accountability and, and desire to try and cover all of this stuff up. So what we're told in public is nothing at all like the reality of what is in the archives, but it's extremely hard to get that information. And we only learn about it decades later, three, four, five decades later. It's quite phenomenal. It's, this is it's definitely not front of mind. It's, you know, of, of all of the issues that, that you know, the media is discussing and, and possibly that's, that's deliberate. What's the current state of play with nuclear weapons around the world right now? So you were saying there's nine armed states. Um, you know, how many weapons altogether? And, you know, what, what's the model upon which they're, that they're deployed? Yeah, so there's, as you said, there's nine nuclear armed states. So uh, China, France, Russia, the United Kingdom, the United States are the five that are recognised under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty which aims to advance disarmament and prevent the spread of nuclear weapons. And then there are four countries that are not a member of that treaty, uh, which is Israel, India, Pakistan, and North Korea. Um, North Korea was formerly a member of that treaty and withdrew and then developed uh, nuclear weapons, or rather developed nuclear weapons whilst a member of the treaty and then withdrew and tested those weapons. Um, so there's nine nuclear armed states. Uh, there's roughly 13,000 uh, nuclear warheads are still in existence. So that's more than enough to make the rubble bounce many times over, to, to use the Cold War analogy. Um, and yeah, as I said, there's just, there's just far, far more potential vectors uh, of risk and, and pathways to escalation via which those weapons uh, could be used. So I guess the, the other thing I, I really wanted to come back to that I flagged before is this question of money. So we have this public perception that the politics of this entire area is governed by this rational strategic analysis and policymaking 
based on nuclear deterrence, right? Nuclear threat making. And it's, it's, in my opinion, that's just a farce because what it does is it completely ignores the question of money. So in my world, and as I said, you know, I've been studying nuclear weapons for coming on 17 years. Nobody ever talks about money in the policy world. You never say, where does that analyst work? You never ask who's paying the bills because that's considered a dirty, it's a dirty question. Like what is who pays my salary have to do with my opinion about strategic weapons policy? I'm like, well, in my opinion, I grew up, my father always used to say, who said it and who do they work for? And the implication is like, who's paying their, who's paying their bills? Who's putting food on their family's table? And like in every other industry, that's a critical question because we understand that money matters. And in this industry, what you have is we have, and I, and I say this advisedly because this is the, the phrase that the United States government used when it designed it. We have a permanent war economy. We have an economy in which war is a profitable business because it was deliberately designed that way by the United States following World War II. You know, World War, World War II, the United States came out of that conflict enormously wealthy because it had been manufacturing and selling guns to everybody, uh, to all of its allies. And it saw that that form of um, guaranteed income, guaranteed industrial output was an enormous driver of economic activity. So it deliberately created what it explicitly called a permanent war economy. Now, the result of that is that war is a profitable business. The result of that is that the companies that are involved in making weapons or servicing weapons industries, all of the service industries around that, uh, has a lot of money. They offer highly paid uh, highly skilled jobs, which are obviously very sought after. And that brings with it both uh, economic well-being, uh, so wealth, political influence, because you've got a very wealthy, highly paid, uh, high-profile constituency. Mm. And, and so that creates status. And so what you have is an economy in which wealth, political influence, and status are associated with making weapons. And in the nuclear context, just to take, again, the United States. Now, it may sound like I'm picking on them. The reason partly that I talk about the United States so much is because they are the most transparent. You can get the most information about their activities. So that's one of the reasons right. that I talk about them as, as an example. But in the United States, uh, they have plans now to spend around $1.2 trillion over the next uh, 25 odd years renewing all of their nuclear weapon systems. And they're not alone. So all nine of the nuclear arms states are either modernizing their nuclear arsenals or increasing the sizes of their nuclear arsenals or both. And that's why I say we're now in a multipolar nuclear arms race. They're all building more weapons or better weapons or newer weapons. And so the reason for that is because it's, well, part of the reason I would argue is because it's profitable. Because it's in the that economy, industry, keeps the economy going, yeah. It does. And so there's incentives for... And again, I, I want to draw out the issue of incentives because we'll come back to that later uh, on the issue of blockchain. In that world, the incentives for politicians and venture capitalists is to invest in weapons because they're very profitable, right? And because those industries have enormous constituencies around them that are great at lobbying politicians, donating to politicians, uh, voting for politicians who support the war economy. And again, to take the, last, the, the example in the United States, the last three U.S. presidents received major donations from companies that manufacture nuclear weapons. Uh, I mean, it's just been amazing since, since the, the Afghanistan withdrawal um, and, you know, and now the sort of increased saber rattling, you know, across the Taiwan Strait, you know, almost the day after. 
Um, and I remember there was the speech that Biden made, and he said this is the first time in 20 years that the United States hasn't been at war. Um, yeah, <laughs> they, you know, clearly, like you say, it, it is a permanent war footing um, that, yeah. that they, you know, that they seem and, to be and on. There is an enormous and a very powerful constituency that has deliberately been built over the years, which makes a lot of money out of that. Yeah. And, and so what I'm saying is strange in the nuclear context is there's almost no discussion about the fact that making nuclear weapons and therefore making nuclear threats is a profitable business because that impacts what we are incentivized to do in our, in our daily lives and who puts the food on the table for our families and all these kind of things. And I mean, where does New Zealand stand in all of that? I, I think Rocket Lab is a perfect example of the permanent war economy. So, you know, I don't know how much the, the media sphere has, has followed the debates around it, but Rocket Lab since 2013, I, th I think it's 2013, it's, it's about that time, has been 100% US owned. So it's not a New Zealand company. It's a 100% US owned company. Uh, it received $8.3 million from the Provincial Growth Fund last year to build a road uh, to enable it to, you know, make its activities more, more efficient. So you've got government investing millions of dollars in it. Now, and one of its most uh, regular and, and reliable customers is the U.S. military. It's multiple U.S. military agencies. Yep. Now, they'll say we're not supporting weapons, but it's really hard to, to distinguish how we're not. So uh, a great example is the um, Gunsmoke J. There was a payload that they launched in space for a U.S. military agency that was called Gunsmoke J., According to that U.S. military agency and its reports to the U.S. Congress, the purpose of that satellite was to enable battlefield targeting by tactical commanders on the ground. So what you've got is a U.S.-owned company getting money from the New Zealand government to expand its operations in New Zealand that's putting satellites into space. As part of that US. whole supply chain, yeah. And equally, and equally, and this comes back to the issue of nukes, uh, and, and I've Plenty of resources I can recommend your listeners to that actually go into this in some detail. Mm. I would argue it is technically impossible for the for the New Zealand government to guarantee that what we're putting into space now for the US military is not in future going to be used to help target US nuclear weapons. There's no technical capacity to guarantee mm. that. The, the New Zealand government will say, no, no, we're not doing that at all, and it's all by the book, but... There's an advisory committee that advises the prime minister. It's called the Public Advisory Committee on Disarmament and Arms Control. It was created in 1987 by the New Zealand Nuclear Free Zone Act. And that committee is made up of experts, um, non-governmental experts, academics, former military personnel, former diplomats. And they have a statutory uh, mandate to advise the prime minister on the implementation of the Nuclear Free Act. And it's just come out in the news the last couple of weeks that committee has written to the Prime Minister twice to express its expert collective concern uh, that the activities of Rocket Lab, there's no, there's no ability to say definitively, but they have significant concern that they may be contributing to a breach of the New Zealand Nuclear Free Zone Act. Now, the Attorney General has come back and said, fish, that, that's all rubbish. We're not knowingly doing any of that. But my point is, if... The US military doesn't tell us exactly what is in the payloads, and the New Zealand government has, has limited ability to enforce that. Then how do we know what's in those payloads? How do we know what software is going to be uploaded to them further down the track? And the answer is we don't. 
So if we don't know what's in the payloads and the government will say, oh, we do know, but how do we know? Because the US military told us. Well, so is, is it now, are we now in a situation where it's acceptable that in order to not breach the New Zealand Nuclear Free Zone Act, we are going to trust the US military agencies and bearing in mind, these agencies that are launching payloads with Rocket Lab, a US-owned company, using US technology, are the same agencies that in other parts of their activities operate, develop, and maintain US nuclear weapons. Now, these agencies clearly have a vested interest in saying, oh, no, no, there's nothing to see here. Of course, we're not breaking your nuclear-free law. But remember, who was most upset when New Zealand instigated the nuclear free law was the US military because we were we were limiting their ability to send their nuclear weapons around the world by banning them in our internal waters. Yep. So we're now in a situation where the only guarantee we have that the US that the New Zealand government is not allowing Rocket Lab to assist in the development of systems that could be used to target nuclear weapons is the word of the US military agencies who produce and manage nuclear weapons. It raises the question, you know, New Zealand's relatively unique globally having this nuclear free zone legal status, right? Uh, in some ways, we, we certainly weren't the first. There were other countries in the Pacific that beat us to it. Um, Palau, I think Vanuatu had a nuclear free policy before us. However, we certainly were early and we certainly are the only country that was a formal treaty ally of the United States ever to reject nuclear deterrence. So that was quite unique. But we also now are amongst a community of other countries that have signed the Nuclear Ban Treaty or the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. So that's a United Nations treaty. It was, it was negotiated at the United Nations, uh, entered into force this year. And New Zealand really led the charge on that with a bunch of other countries, South Africa, um, Austria, um, various, various others. And that treaty is uh, a further step forward beyond the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. So the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which came into force in 1970, says that countries that don't have nuclear weapons uh, will agree not to get them by any means. Countries that do have nuclear weapons, uh, the five that I mentioned before, China, France, Russia, UK, US, they agree to work in good faith to disarm their nuclear weapons. And all countries agree to work uh, to advance the peaceful uses of nuclear technologies. So what that treaty doesn't do is it doesn't outlaw nuclear weapons and it doesn't outlaw the making of nuclear threats. And as a result, the UK, US, China, all those guys, they say, well, it's fine for us to have these nuclear deterrence policies where we threaten nuclear annihilation. You're all going to die, but we think it's in our interest. So we are going to claim the right to kill everybody uh, if we think that serves our political interests. So there's a really huge moral risk there, right? You're effectively saying... I claim the right to end all human life in the name of my imagined uh, political community. And if you don't my, think my game be, of my imaginary game of chess, my imaginary game of chess. And if you don't think that that's imaginary, I'd say, well, hang on. The Soviet Union was the the key player in this imaginary game of chess until 1990, 1991, right, where it was threatening the entire world with tens of thousands of nuclear weapons, and then it just dissolved, and suddenly all of this risk that the entire of humanity had been under in the name of this imagined political community called the Soviet Union, the community disappeared. So was the, was the threat to annihilate all of humanity really a valid moral risk that we should be running? I mean, it's worth just considering the breakup of the Soviet Union, because I mean, if you were in the you know, 1990s and 
saying that you know in a couple of years time that it will have peacefully dissolved you know relatively peacefully and you know there'll be this sort of monopolar global hegemony um from the us then no one would have believed you and i i you know there's certainly signals that i pick up potential for the us to maybe disintegrate the next election basically you get a um trump type figure but actually knows what they're doing and actually with you know understands how to use the executive levers then you know that country could you know rapidly descend into some kind of civil war right and and similarly with china right so the the over centralization of china that's been happening you know, never underestimate you know the possibility of a a fragmentation there um you know despite the narratives that we're constantly fed by our mainstream media and so what were the mechanics when the soviet union broke up of management of the you know and, and control of that nuclear arsenal you're saying that it was spread across Russia and three other states. The major risk here is that as part of that fragmentation, one of these weapons basically makes its, well, you know, the nuclear material makes its way into a non-state actor. You know, at that point, you, you know, the the attack vectors that you've been describing just become, you know, they don't become missiles, they become sort of suitcases and shipping containers, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a critical issue. Um, non-state actors, terrorists getting hold of nuclear material, as you said, Nuclear technology is you no know, like old school material, uh, old school technology. It hasn't changed a lot since you know since the first bomb was invented in '45. Um, the weapons designs are available on the dark web, easy as you like, and it's becoming easier and easier to get hold of the nuclear materials because the technology is advancing rapidly, and so it's easier to develop. Um, there's new technologies being de uh, developed called, for example, laser enrichment, uh, which the UK and I think. South Korea and, and various other countries are developing. The hardest part of building a bomb is getting the nuclear material. And so once you've got that, even if you can't build a missile, as you say, if you can create a nuclear explosion or even a, a dirty bomb where you just spread the nuclear material widely would create such panic and such chaos uh, that it, it would be devastating. And so that material is becoming more widely available more easily. Uh, and so, yeah, when you talk about the potential for state fragmentation, I mean, again, if if you were to start predicting the demise of any of these great powers that you're talking about, you would be called crazy. But as you just said, if you had said in 1987, oh, look, give it a few years, this whole Cold War thing will have just blown over, Soviet Union will have dissolved peacefully, and all of the weapons will have been returned to Russia, that'll all be done, you would have been called a crazy person. And yet, there you have it, right? And it's yeah. it's that type of the unknowability of the future is really undermines all of our theories about how stable and strategically logical and sensible the system that we live in is. It's, it's really not. Um, so yeah, that the threat of uh, state collapse, I mean, people generally in my world, they focus on the risk of that type of thing happening in Pakistan. Yeah. But as you say, I mean, when you look at the fact that you can have thousands of people storm the, the so-called home of democracy, right? Capitol Hill yeah. in Washington, riot, six people die, a cop is killed, and one half of the political class won't even recognize it as a problem. Right? Yeah, we look at it from the outside. Um, and, you know, I think we're all relatively immune to America's self-narrative um, that, that drives a lot of this. But, it, you know, it definitely feels that the, the risk of a Trumpian figure emerging, you know, with really without restraint, 
um, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely a scenario that I've, that I've got on my radar. So, you know, switching gears here. So, you know, I introduced you at the beginning as an expert in nuclear disarmament, and, but you're also an advisor on blockchain to, uh, you know, the Vatican's sort of commission on the future, uh, right? So what do, you know, how, how have you, um, I guess, you know, moved into this blockchain world and, and then what is the connection between, you know, your work on nuclear disarmament and potentially blockchain technology? I have been interested, as, as you said in the intro, in not just the politics of nuclear disarmament, but also the technologies. And so I look at this challenge of how are we going to reduce nuclear risks, including by reducing and ultimately eliminating nuclear weapons, not just as a political challenge, but as a technological challenge. And so in that regard, um, I approach the question from, in, in nerdy terms, what's called a techno-political perspective, which says the tools that you use are never neutral. So technology is never neutral. If you hear people saying that it's neutral, I, I would argue that that's mistaken. Technology is inherently political. It reflects the power structures of a particular society at a particular time. It reflects the norms and values of a particular society to, at a particular time. That determines the types of technologies that we choose to build and choose to adopt en masse. And then over time, those technologies impact on our political systems because particular technologies make certain types of behavior, certain types of policies easier. And because they make them easier, they make them more likely. And then what they do is basically the characteristics of the technology shape the way that humans think and act over time. And over time, that impacts on societal norms, values, and also hierarchies. So technology is inherently political. So I look at this question, I say, well, if you break down a nuclear weapon, what is it? It's a tool that is designed to cause indiscriminate, massive violence. And so as a political tool, what can you do with that technology? Well, you can either threaten massive indiscriminate violence, or you can enact massive indiscriminate violence. But as a policy tool, those literally are your two only options. Like if you're painting, you know, if you're painting with nuclear weapons, your palette is either threaten or enact massive indiscriminate violence. Yeah. So it's a pretty limited palette. But, but once you start thinking in those terms, it locks you into those are your only policy options at the strategic level. I've been looking at blockchain. And, and, regard, and, and uh, you know, to your point on the economics of it earlier, at any cost, right? At any, at any economic cost, because the, strategically, this is what we must do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because we don't talk about money, because money doesn't matter, because we're all rational beings. All leaders are rational. All leaders react rationally with the same rational logic in a crisis. So therefore, we can predict that everything's going to be fine. That's, that's the theory behind it. Um, so I applied the same lens, this techno-political lens to blockchain to say, well, what is blockchain? So blockchain is the technology that underlies Bitcoin, but Bitcoin is just one example of a blockchain. There are actually some 6,000 odd blockchains out there. And I would, I would uh, also add for, for listeners that are concerned about climate issues, uh, of those 6,000 blockchains, very few of them use the same cryptographic mechanism that Bitcoin uses. And as a result, virtually none of them use anywhere near the same amount of electricity. Ethereum is close, um, but there's a whole range of blockchains out there that basically yeah. use negligible amounts of electricity and therefore their carbon impact and their ecological impact is, is drastically, drastically lower. I mean, it's obviously the proof of state uh, work that's happening that's being rolled out onto the Ethereum 
um, you know, network over the next you know few months, as I understand it, um, you know, is, is going to re significantly reduce the carbon impact of, of you know that particular. Yeah, they say um, about ninety nine point five percent of the yeah. energy footprint will be eliminated yeah. once you move to proof of stake. So, at any rate, uh, I've been looking at blockchains and as systems for governance for collective governance. What types of systems do they make possible, and how do those systems change the way we think about politics? And so I've applied that lens to this problem of nuclear disarmament. And basically, uh, what I've said is, in the process of in the process of getting rid of nuclear weapons, uh, most countries prefer to verify. Uh, so you know, Reagan famously said, "Trust but verify," which is actually a play in an old Russian phrase, "Dvori na pravori," which is basically the same thing, but he stole it from the Russians. Um, which is to say, you don't trust, when Russia says, okay, you get rid of 10 weapons, we'll get rid of 10 weapons, you don't trust that they've done it, you verify, you go and inspect the weapons, you inspect facilities. So how do you do that comprehensively when you're trying to collectively, multilaterally move towards disarmament? And I argue that in order to do that, you need very sound data records that people can trust. Because how do we know that Russia is not keeping its records and then changing them when we're not looking? And in that context, the, the so-called immutability of a of a blockchain ledger is a very powerful um, is a very powerful characteristic. So the ability to create distributed ledgers that that everybody owns collectively and no one can change unilaterally enables and with, trust. With and with what kind of security overlay there do you have in mind? So is this something that's open to any citizen of the planet? Um, or is it really just kept you know, secret to you know the, the, all of the holders of nuclear weapons? So the way that I've imagined it is that you would have a public but permissioned blockchain. So it is a, it is a consortium blockchain, but the consortium would be made up at a minimum of dozens of different states and probably uh, various other actors outside of that, and equally to include individual citizens. Um, so the nodes on the blockchain would, would exist on a spectrum from full nodes, which is where nation states have access to the blockchain itself and to the data on it, right down to the low end where you would have light nodes operated by uh, individual citizens who, and those nodes would be able to contribute to maintenance of, of the, uh, the ledger, say contributing to consensus, but not have access to any of the underlying data. And then in terms of, you asked about security of the system, I'm not suggesting that we put uh, data from verification exercises or practices, and um, you know, getting rid of nuclear warheads, the data from right. that exercise. But just I'm the fact that it was, that it was verified. Just no, the, the hash of the report. Yeah. So okay. you would have countries eliminating warheads, signing transactions collectively, sort of multi-signature transactions from multiple different countries, attesting the fact that the warhead had verifiably been eliminated and the hash of that report would be logged on the blockchain with metadata um, to the extent possible, minimizing the amount of metadata whilst also giving confidence that you could track what was being done. And the metadata itself would be encrypted using homomorphic encryption and zero knowledge proofs so that countries could, uh, countries with the right permissions, that is the, 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 the states, could query the database to make sure that no one was changing it and that, you know, keep track of how many weapons have been reduced, et cetera, over time. You've, you've jumped forward to, to a solution here, right? So 
you know, of all of the challenges that we've discussed, we've discussed so far, you know, what are you what are you fixing here? Um, so what you're basically saying there's an immutable record of disarmament. Yes, but you're quite right. <clears throat> we've we've jumped around a little bit. Um, one of the core reasons that I think that this is of interest is because using a blockchain, you can align the incentives of non-trusting parties in the absence of a central authority. So you can incentivize people or countries to cooperate uh, economically, even if they don't trust each other. And so what I'm actually trying to do with this blockchain-based model for disarmament is invert the incentive structures of the permanent war economy and create a permanent peace economy. So if a permanent war economy is an economy in which it's, it's profitable to uh, engage in war or the development of weapons for war, a permanent peace economy is an economy in which it's peace is a profitable business, right? So by peace, I'm, I'm talking a very narrow definition here, which is the continuous verified enactment of commitments to reduce weapons numbers and not to build new nuclear weapons, right? So in other words, what I'm saying is you're verifying the absence of nuclear threats. And I'm defining peace as that process of yes. verifying it. I, it feels, you know, it feels in some ways very similar to potentially carbon markets. I think the recently the um, commentary from a, a whole bunch of central banks on the climate change crisis has is this is a massive market failure, right? Assuming that, that markets work in this rational uh, way, but it, it, you know, this is a massive market failure where the long-term risks, collective risks, uh, and you know, the, the disasters that are going to befall the world as a result of you know ongoing uh, carbon emissions and methane emissions are just—they're not factored into the, mm -hmm. the economy right now. Yep. And it would seem from your your very opening statement about you know a nuclear winter, which you know from a small conflict affects you know potentially kills you know one to two billion people on the planet, and you know and creates uh, you know and would, would just create economic catastrophe. It would seem that there's a similar market failure here in that that you know by allowing a very small number of states globally. Yeah, with big populations, but uh, to hold this threat over the remainder of the world, mm -hmm. there's a, a sort of market failure. Yeah, nuclear weapons are worse than useless, right? Because they not only don't do what people claim they do, but in addition, they cause enmity, mistrust, and international alienation because we're all constantly threatening each other with annihilation. And as a result, they make it harder to create cooperation on the critical issues that we are facing, like the climate crisis, like ecological collapse, like mass migration, like global pandemics, which are situations where you need multilateral cooperation. Mm. And by creating constant alienation, othering, and, and mutual threats of nuclear annihilation, you make it incredibly difficult to get that kind of cooperation. And so they're worse than useless. They're, they're, they're exacerbating all of these other challenges as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, to, to your point about the market, uh, I really, I'd say check out something just launched, which is called the Climate Collective, right. uh, which is a private version of the, carbon of the carbon coin concept or something close to that, which is mm. um, the Celo Foundation, which runs the Celo blockchain and has um, Celo USD and Celo Euros as stable coins. 
um, is purchasing blocks of uh, forest in, in, I think, in the Amazon as a part of their um, asset backing for their yeah. stablecoin. And so what happens is as more people uh, mint the stablecoin, that money is transferred into purchasing more trees to lock them up and, and ensure that they remain a carbon sink. And yes. so you've got a market mechanism whereby you're incentivized to use this stablecoin. It, it, it amazes me that, you know, that in, so, in many ways could be looked at as the biggest entrepreneurial opportunity that there ever was, right? Because from a reinsurance point of view, right, you know, just insurers with a long, you know, and long-term capital that wants to maintain the value of its capital over mm -hmm. 50 to 100 years really needs to be, you know, thinking about the value of its capital in 2050, 2075 with three or four degrees global warming versus you know the value the with two degrees. And then, you know, so is it worth basically taking a hit for the next 20 years on your P&L in order to, you know, be there at the other end? It would seem that similarly, you know, what you'd be able to do with the nuclear disarmament verification, just having sensors out there around the world detecting nuclear isotopes, I suppose, is that something that is possible on there? Um, yeah, I mean, the technology exists. So, so again, the, the idea of creating incentives is that you create micro incentives at the individual, the institutional and the international level for countries to cooperate in verifying the absence of nuclear threats, nuclear risks. And one way that you do that is through the kind of really elite uh, human centered verification practice on site inspections of weapons laboratories or weapons facilities, et cetera. And at the other end of the spectrum, you've got remote automated monitoring. So mm. for example, instead of an IOT, you would have an IOVT, an internet of verification things. And so that would be a global mesh network of remote sensors that, that monitor particulate matter, that monitor audio signatures of military transports, military trucks or jets or things like this. Um, and they are trained to recognize the signatures, for example, of heavy bombers that carry nuclear weapons or um, particular trucks that are used to transport nuclear warheads. And over time, you build this global mesh uh, and it reports automatically back to the blockchain. And on the blockchain, you have a system of smart contracts that have been yep. coded with particular agreements about, okay, country X will remove all of said these type of vehicles from this area. And that will give country Y confidence that they're not, you know, developing some kind of attack plan. Mm. And then you deploy this, this mesh network of sensors and they just sit there and they verify the absence of the sonic or that the audio signature of those vehicles. And they just report back to the blockchain and, and smart contracts on yep. blockchain just constantly report. Yes, they're in compliance. Yes, they're in compliance. Yes, they're in compliance. And as soon as there is a signature that's an anomaly, the smart contract pops up with a warning flag saying, hang on a minute. We appear to have uh, an audio signature in this area that we shouldn't have. And that allows you to efficiently target your human resources to say, okay, let's send out a team of inspectors and see why it was there. Let's try and build some confidence that it was just an anomaly or perhaps the sensor was malfunctioning, et cetera. And, and it creates efficiencies in the system as well. But it also the other thing that it does is at the moment, we have an absolutely booming, like a flourishing open source intelligence uh, industry. That industry is by and large Western funded and Western uh, populated. And as a result, all of the open source or OSINT is pointed at China, Russia, North Korea, the, you know, these countries. 
in a world without nuclear weapons, that OSINT capability will be pointed at all of the governments of the world yes. and all of their military installations. And so what we need is that. And that's that's what The Economist calls the People's Panopticon. Um, yeah. yeah, I read that. So yeah. It's, yeah, so it's it's that kind of model, but applied to a global nuclear verification system designed to verify the absence of nuclear threats and the absence of the development of nuclear threats. And by incentivizing that economically through micropayments built on a cryptocurrency, so you'd have, for example, a verification coin as the native cryptocurrency of the, of the GNV. The right, I like it, yeah. And all participants in this system at every stage of the system and at every level would be incentivized by the opportunity to earn verification coin. And you might say, well, what value is that? Like, I, no one's going to value that. I'm like, sure. But when Bitcoin was first released, it sold for cents or micro cents, you know? Now it's worth $50,000. And, and the reason well, is because- going back to, you know, my, my point that this is, this is a 50 to 100 year play, right? You have one nuclear winter in the next 50 to 100 years and any of your capital that you own today is going to be worth significantly less. And by the way, 2 billion people would, would die. Right. So I'm not, not trivializing it, but from a, 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 you know, we talk about rational actors, but for well, a, we're talking about market economics, right? Yeah, so like that's, that's the framework we're there looking is at. that long-term incentive um, to do that. Um, so it's an, it's an amazing concept that you're, that you've come up with here, you know, sort of really meshing, you know, nascent new technology, decentralized uh, markets and blockchains. Um, so, you know, how do you actually, how does, how are you progressing this to actually make it real and to get buy-in? Um, so, you know, who, who else is talking about this, these concepts and how, when you go into conversations with the, the, the U.S. sort of nuclear military establishment and, and start talking about, well, I've got this idea about a blockchain for verification. Is there a sort of translation challenge? Uh Generally, the response that I get from government officials when I've talked about this is no. That's that's the general vibe is just just no. That's that's no thing. There is some there is some acceptance uh, among certain officials of the fact that the immutability of the blockchain is a genuine innovation that offers significant potential in confidence building exercises. So there is recognition of that there is something unique and, and, and valuable here, mm. but the ability to apply it in the disarmament context is, 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 pretty, is pretty limited work has been done on that. There has been a reasonable amount of work done on the concept of uh, nuclear safeguards, which is stopping the spread of nuclear weapons. So the, the Stimson Center has done a lot of work on this in the United States. Um, Finland has built a full national scale prototype of a uh, nuclear material accounting and control system built on a distributed ledger. Right. Um, so it's a, it's a it's a private permission um, ledger, but but they're experimenting with that. Um, Australia and the United States have built similar prototypes, although uh, lower scale, not not national level to the same degree. So there's a lot of research going on in this area around stopping the spread of nuclear weapons. Yep. There's very very little around how this actually apply to disarmament. Which comes yeah, back think- to which comes back to your original point about the economic incentives to perpetuate the military industrial, you know, well, status exactly. quo. I've been very fascinated by the conversations, um, Balaji Shravinison's sort of concept of a, a network state. 
bringing sort of almost unbundling nation states and and distributing mm -hmm. them you know so just non-territorial states that exist mm -hmm. um you know effectively uh, in, in the metaverse that is a uh disarmament actor yep pro-disarmament actor would be a, a, a network state who's with incentives for global disarmament um because they, they have no territorial you know yeah, sort of, uh, I tell claims. You what so the thing about that, the thing about that, I'm I'm pretty skeptical of the whole Srinivasan thesis around the network state and exit. And here's why: he aims to create a network state, but his ultimate goal is to perpetuate the existing state. Because if you look at the end of his thesis, he says, "And then we create contiguous geographical land, and we've got our own state, and we'll probably yeah. have a military and a flag and our own currency." And I'm like, right, so you just recreated the state. And in that regard, one thing I'd say about, like, I, I kind of put that in the category of tech utopianism. And it's, in my opinion, it's a, it's a pretty a sociological view of the world. It ignores humanity and, and yeah. thinks that technology is the solution to everything. So just to be clear, you know, I, my work is deeply sociological. As I said earlier, all technology is political you know, when we're encoding any system, whether it's the system that I'm proposing or any other protocol, any other algorithm, we need to be deeply aware of our own inherent biases because otherwise we end up with coded bias, right? Whether it's on racial or gender or, or any other um, set of parameters, R really highly recommend watching the film Coded Bias. It's excellent on, on this issue. Um, and what Balaji Srinivasan's vision does is just say well we'll just code our way around the nation state as though geography doesn't matter and i'm actually deeply skeptical of the idea that geography doesn't matter anymore because all of your servers exist in a nation state and in that nation state we have this norm of sovereignty that says that the nation state is allowed to use violence against you if it thinks that you're doing something well, that's not in its interest. well that's you know the concept of a nation state like you say would need a defense capability right um and that's and he said, I mean, I, I try to think if I've heard him actually say the words military force, but certainly his thesis is hmm. we start by crowdsourcing the community online, then we co collectively crowdsource and buy parcels of land. Then over time, we join those parcels together, create a contiguous state. And at the end of the vision, all we've done is we've recreated the state, but with a cryptocurrency. So we've got a CBDC and, and a very of, low tax rate. Yeah. <laughs> and a very low tax rate. But then once you've got that physical nation state, then how do you enforce order? Well, you have a police force. Okay, well, what if your neighbors wants to steal, you know, the food that you're growing? Well, then we need a military. Okay, well, now we're just back at the nation state again. So I'm pretty skeptical about that we're just gonna like create some blockchain utopia by recreating the nation state in the cloud first. And I and I think that, yeah, I mean, he's a he's like a he's like a software engineer i mean he's a brilliant guy I mean, the guy's a genius there's no doubt he's a genius full-blown genius i'm not denying that but he's a very technical thinker and i think that a lot of his stuff is is deeply unsociologically aware that would be my take excellent um so so Lyndon, i guess you know if we were just to um you know wrap up the conversation now it's been just completely fascinating and it's opened my eyes to a whole bunch of areas of, of you know sort of things happening around the world that just were beneath my awareness um, for my whole life, to be honest. Um, so, you know, for, in terms of what you're doing 
next and what you know what's your roadmap from here what are the you know you're working with um this vatican commission right now what mm -hmm. what are the couple of you know key uh, pieces of work that you've now got in the pipeline so i'm about to submit for publication a, a full draft of the global nuclear verification uh system yep um which is uh yeah so so that's kind of like the next key uh academic step is to publish that I'd like to start working on some uh, public educational videos to talk around these concepts, to talk around the permanent war economy versus a permanent peace economy, et cetera. So, you know, as you mentioned at the top, um, I have a passion for film, worked in film, I've yeah. made a bunch of short documentaries and stuff. So uh, I'd like to keep, um, keep working on that. Uh, I'm working with the Vatican on their new technologies for peace working group within their COVID commission. Uh, the reason for that is because the current Pope is, he's passionate about social justice. He's passionate about environmental justice. He takes a very holistic view of the world, of human flourishing, uh, of, of well-being and how it relates to environmental well-being, et cetera. And he's also a passionate advocate of nuclear disarmament. Yep. So whereas his predecessors said, we don't really like nuclear weapons, but it's kind of a necessary evil. Uh Pope Francis has come out and said, no, no, it's just an evil, evil. It's not necessary. It's just an evil, it's an evil, evil. And there's no, there's no legitimate reason to have or threaten or use or have anything to do with nuclear weapons. So they reached out to me uh, when they saw, I published a paper um, last year uh, on blockchain and nuclear disarmament verification. So that's already available on the King's College website. If you search nuclear disarmament verification and blockchain, I'm pretty sure it's you know, <laughs> there's one paper. Well. <laughs> yeah, I, I couldn't find anything else worldwide that had that in the title yeah. when I published it. Um, and they found that and, and reached out to me and said, hey, we've got this new tech for peace working group. Our goal is to, instead of militarizing all of this new technology, which everyone's rushing to do, right? How are we going to use AI for our military? How are we going to use, uh, you know, 3D printing to, to print weapons yeah. in, in, in theater? How do you Vatican use this technology? Yeah, and it, it's often framed as sort of AI for good or you know blockchain for good. But yeah, mm -hmm. how do you how do you frame it in um, in this disarmament scenario? And what's um, yeah, what's fascinating about the Vatican context is uh, they're not a bunch of tech bros. You know, they're people who think that technology impacts real human beings' lives, and therefore that the church should have a position on it. I should clarify, I'm I'm not religious. I'm not Catholic. They just reached out to me because of my yeah. work. Um, but they believe that uh, the Pope Francis believes that they need to meet people where they are. That is that in lives which are infused with technology and, and affected by technology. And so they need to be able to reach out to people spiritually in that world that they live in. And yeah. so their idea is how can we take all of these new technologies and turn them towards human flourishing and what they call integral yeah. human development, where you develop not just the economy or not just the mind, but the spirit and community and, uh, you know, collective security and, and collective uh, environmental integrity. And so they reached out to me. And so I will be doing a lot of work with them, uh, in, including further developing ideas around blockchain and um, uh, a little teaser, we, you know, started looking at the concept of NFTs as well and, 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 and where that sits in this whole kind of Intriguing. For, for Disarmament and uh, NFTs. Watch this space. Watch this space. That's, that's excellent. Excellent uh, place to end. Um, Linda Burford, look, thanks for it. It's been a fascinating conversation. Uh, I think you're doing amazing work. Um, 
you know, really uh, advancing this cause of nuclear disarmament um, and non-proliferation. Um, yeah, it's been a pleasure to talk to you uh, this morning. Uh, thanks very much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much, Ben.